We are ready to examine our passage uh, this morning in the book of Hebrews. So if you take your Bibles and find your way to Hebrews chapter 10, a new chapter for us to begin this morning. We are uh, making our way systematically through this book. It's been a wonderful journey. We have a few more chapters to go, but we are past the halfway point, believe it or not. Hebrews chapter 10. While you're turning there, just uh, a few words of introduction I think are appropriate. If you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, then you know that it's the sum total of King Solomon's sober and wise observations about life. You also know that they cast a pall over all of what the world has come to believe is all significant. He observes, for example, what advantage does a person have in all his works that he does under the sun? His answer, none at all, really. Generations come, generations go, only the earth remains forever. How about this one? For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, along with the fool, since in the coming of days everything will soon be forgotten. And how the wise and the fool die alike. In the end, all lives, he says, are reduced to a memory. And eventually people forget about us, even if we happen to be somebody famous. You die the same way a fool does, really, and eventually no one you know is left to put flowers on your grave. So your accomplishments and your reputation are of no significance after all in the end. The book also emphasizes the futility of pleasure. It, emph it emphasizes the futility of, well, life itself, right down to our goals and intentions. He says, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Well, if that's not gloomy enough, Jesus would come, come and later expose the futility of amassing material wealth with a penetrating rhetorical question that has become proverbial. What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Answer is, it profits him nothing. Questions like these, by the way, are not unique to the book of Ecclesiastes. You can find sobering and sage wisdom about what really matters in life all over the Bible. And because every part belongs to one collection that we call the canon, we're not surprised to learn that what really matters in life, what's really the most important thing in life, is to know God. And by know, I mean in the intimate sense of the word know, love relationship. More accurately, to be known by God, same idea behind know. To be right with God, to, to have a right standing before him, to have his acceptance, his pleasure, his approval. There are many ways to say it, but really only one idea behind them all. To be reconciled with God. That's it. Most important thing in life. That's really the only thing in life that matters, and it's the only thing that will bring true happiness. Question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism really sums up this idea well, I think. It asks, what is the chief end of man? The informed answer from Scripture that the Catechism provides is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God 
and to enjoy him forever. That's it. Beloved, there's nothing more satisfying to a person than that he knows that he has been reconciled to God. To know that your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future, that you no longer have to live in fear of a future judicial judgment of God, well, that's the main truth that sets the tone for the rest of our lives. The worst is over. The best is yet to come. What is there that can move us? When you have this assurance, what thoughts or emotions or circumstances can emotionally debilitate us, really? Have you lost money or perhaps <clears throat> have had it stolen? Or, or maybe you'll never rise above the poverty line. At least you're wondering about that. Well, if you're reconciled to God, then you're rich. Are people against you? Do you have enemies that plot your demise? Well, it doesn't matter one bit because if you've been reconciled with God, God is for you. See, there's nothing greater than to know that you've been reconciled to God. And you see why anything else in life, the best, in fact, that life has to offer, falls far short of bringing ultimate happiness and contentment. It's temporal, it's, it's earthly, and, and it fades away. Anything else makes no difference to your life after you die. In addition, let me say life is fickle. It's hard. And most of it is out of our control. Besides, God created us so that we, that he rather, would be the center of our lives. And his word would be our wisdom and delight. That's how he created us. And this is why so many rich people are never happy in what they have when they don't have Christ or why many famous people who don't have Christ are so miserable. No one is impervious to disease, to what they've inherited biologically, or to the hard side of life. In the end, we all die the same way. We go out the same way we came in, with nothing. The body returns to dust because part of it becomes part of the earth from which God made us. And we are quite helpless to face what comes next. I say again then, there is nothing greater than to know that you have been reconciled to God. It sets the tone for the rest of our lives here on earth and it prepares us for what comes next. I believe that being reconciled to God is the very issue that the writer presents to the Hebrews att uh, attending this first century local church. There were among them those perhaps on the verge of trusting Christ but hadn't yet, and for one reason or another, maybe even some newly converted Christians who came out of the gate very excited, as, as new believers usually are, very zealous. But who were now in the faith a while and had incurred some pretty stiff persecution that is so familiar with being associated with Christ. These groups were facing the heat, either from families, from religious leaders, from the empire, or all three. And as we pointed out in our introduction a year ago, they find themselves retreating back to, their, to that erroneous belief system, whether it was pure Judaism or some variation of it. 
Whenever anyone who associates with Christ is tempted to retreat from the faith and seek refuge in an old fortress of his satanic ideology, or maybe incorporate their old ideologies into their newfound faith, the issue of being reconciled to God presents itself to them right away. And we would do well to ask at this point, in whom are you resting for your assurance of salvation, of justification, of a perfect and holy standing before God, of assurance that there is therefore now no condemnation upon you, or no fear of retribution that only perfect love casts out? What is it if it's not Christ? Because if it's not Christ and him crucified, then it is a lie. And it cannot give you this assurance. And to turn to it and embrace it for this assurance is a fool's errand. So stop, turn around, and embrace Christ alone. That's what the writer says. The writer of Hebrews does essentially this, says essentially this in our text this morning in Hebrews 10. First for, uh, 18 verses, that is what occupies our attention this morning. It's the last part of a lengthy section that he began way back in chapter 4, if you remember. Christ is superior to Aaron. Christ's sacrifice is superior to Aaron and the way he sacrifices, or the Levitical sacrifices. And in this last part, the writer indirectly poses this all-important question, or raises this all-important issue to the first century readers. And to everyone, really, who reads this letter, you cannot walk away from reading this text without having this issue raised in your mind. And it's every reader's responsibility to truly answer it. Have you been reconciled to God? Now, the way that the text raises this issue is to draw attention to the concept of perfection. Concept of perfection. The passage really centers on it. It opens, the, opens and closes the, uh, the whole passage with the word perf perfect. Now, we have encountered this word before in the book of Hebrews already. Uh, in past occurrences, it has had the idea of completion, maturity, not lacking in anything. In chapter 7, verse 28, for example, you might remember the writer compares the humanity of the Old Testament priests, calling them weak, with the divinity of the Son of God, who has been made perfect forever. He means, of course, that Jesus had fulfilled all that he needed to in order to accomplish salvation for us. And so he doesn't need to do anything else. This work of salvation lacks nothing. It's complete. Its work is finished. So he's, he's not only reached the state where he has accomplished all righteousness for us, in order to save us at, at the end of his public ministry. But it counts for all eternity. Jesus doesn't need to accomplish anything else now. And that's why it's perfect or complete. We see that the same idea in chapter 9, verse 9, where the writer explains that the Old Testament gifts and sacrifices cannot make the worshiper complete in conscience. Do you remember that? Uh, we were very careful to say that the Old Testament believers we're actually able to receive confirmation from the priest that their sins were forgiven, that God had accepted their sacrifice and had forgiven them, and they were able to walk away with a clear conscience. They were. And that's because 
Every Old Testament believer who is a true believer, his forgiveness, he knew, and his cleansing, he knew, cleansing of his conscience, were based on the future work of Messiah. That's what they believe, which these sacrifices simply pointed to. That's all. But because Messiah hadn't actually come yet to accomplish this, to die once for all for them, well, the Old Testament saints had to offer sacrifices repeatedly. Repeatedly clear their conscience year after year. But with the New Covenant, Jesus' finished work finally settled the matter once and for all so that we might enjoy a complete conscience, a fuller and more informed conscience now. Nothing more needs to be done. It's been done. Christ has settled the matter with his sacrifice. So that's the idea of perfect already used in the book. It has to do with completion, not lacking in anything, being mature. But those meanings cannot be plugged in. We can't plug those meanings into this particular passage. It won't make sense. In our present passage, the word perfect doesn't mean maturity. It doesn't mean completion. Rather, it refers to moral and spiritual perfection. Perfect in the sense that first comes to your mind. It means that we are free of any and all sin and are morally perfect in Christ as far as God is concerned. We're talking about our perfect standing, of course, before God in Christ, which is not our experience yet, you understand. Paul would say in Philippians 3, verse 12, that it is because of his standing in God that he strives in his human life to live in a way that completes his perfect standing in Christ. This is what he says. Not that I have already grasped all or have already become perfect experientially, but I press on if I may also take hold of that which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Perfection positionally. Until he knows experientially, experientially rather, in heaven, what he is positionally in heaven, he will strive to live that way now. And that must be the way that we all, all Christians live, that we all live now. Now let's see how the writer of Hebrews confronts his readership with this all-important issue, being reconciled to God, and their attempt to secure that outside of Christ as a fool's errand. Let's see how he does this. We might, <clears throat> we might notice first off that the literary structure of these 18 verses helps to demonstrate this important truth. You always need to consider the literary structure of a text, how it's ordered. We do the same thing when we write letters today. If you still write letters, whether you write it or type it or email it or text it, there are times when the way we say something is very important, almost as important as what we want to say, how we convey truth. Same thing here. This text divides into two parts, and in a way that the first part is compared and in, is shown to be inferior to the second part. More specifically, verses 1 to 4 demonstrate that the Old Testament sacrifices could never present someone perfect to God. Never. And verses 5 to 18, the second part, demonstrates why Messiah can and has. So let's see how that unfolds. Part 1. 
We're looking at the Old Testament sacrifices and why they could not present one saved and sinless before God, perfect in his standing before God. As I say, this is the bottom line issue in the discussion that the writer has with those in this church who have been gravitating toward a false religion. And he tells them that their false religious system cannot make them presentable before God and that it's really a lie. If the Old Testament sacrificial system in its purest form couldn't secure one a right standing before God, then neither can any sect of Judaism back then. So he gives three reasons why this is so. Three reasons why this is so. First reason is that these sacrifices are just shadows. They're mere shadows. They're part of the Old Testament ceremonial law that presents, at best, only a shadow of Christ, only a shadow of the reality. Look at verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the form of those things itself can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually every year, make those who approach perfect, saved and sinless. Nope. In other words, you cannot find salvation in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It wasn't designed for that. Second reason is that these sacrifices were repetitive. They were repetitive. They they had to be repeated by the worshiper as often as he sinned, if you can imagine that. And once a year during the Day of Atonement for national cleansing. This became really laborious. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. It's a rhetorical question. In other words, if the If the sacrifice was good enough once, then he wouldn't need to keep on doing it because he would have been clear in his conscience for good. The fact that they were repetitive, though, meant that they were insufficient to do only what Messiah could do. Remember, the sacrifices were object lessons to the Old Testament saints of what Messiah would do once for all time. Every time they sacrificed, they would think to themselves, I'm doing this. Because this is what Messiah will do for me in sacrifice of himself. That's what they thought. These, of course, are the true remnant of Israel. This is what they believe. Third reason is that these sacrifices are by, uh, were by nature insufficient. By nature. It's the nature of the sacrifice. Uh, it was such that it, 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 it really did little more than remind sinners every year of their desperate need to be cleansed of their sins by Messiah. That's what it did. It reminded them. Look at verses uh, 3 and 4. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. We know, just as they did, that animal blood could not take away sin. It only pointed to the blood of Messiah that someday would. So the first part of this text clearly establishes the fact that Old Testament sacrifices could not present one saved and sinless before God. Impossible. The writer switches gears now and he presents the second part of his argument. And it is by implication of comparison 
It teaches why only Messiah's sacrifice for our sins could reconcile us to God, could present us saved and sinless before God positionally. And that's in verses 5 to 18. He's been comparing the two covenants, as you know, and the two priesthood of each, that is Aaron and Jesus, all throughout since chapter 4. And it's a great teaching tool, this comparison. It certainly communicated to his audience, since they were looking to the Old Testament system as their guarantee of a right standing before God. So what we have before us now is a powerful defense of the sufficiency of the atonement in this comparison. He presents seven reasons for the superiority of Jesus' atonement or sacrifice. Seven reasons. They're not complicated. Much of this is territory you already know. Let's take a peek. Number one, first reason, it was part of God's eternal plan. Jesus' sacrifice was part of God's eternal plan, verses 5 to 7. Therefore, he says, when Jesus came into the world, he says, you have not desired sacrifices and offerings, but you have prepared a body for me. You have not taken pleasure in whole burnt offerings or sin offerings. Then I said, behold, I have come. It is written of me in the scroll of the book to do your will, O God. In the eternal mind of the Godhead, there was a sweet determination for the plan of salvation. And we know it as the we, we, we know that the eternal Son said to the eternal Father, in eternity past, you have prepared a body for me. We know, don't we, that it was God's plan from all eternity that the Son would be given a human body to sacrifice for the sins of those who would later inhabit heaven. And he acknowledged God's perfect will, and he said, I have come to do it. It was also in God's plan that the Mosaic Covenant would serve as an honorable but temporary purpose, which was to broadcast in very graphic and bloody ways the divine plan for Messiah. The son says it was written. I love this ever-so-brief comment that the Son makes to Scripture. This is Psalm 40s. The writer is putting the words of the psalmist in Psalm 40 in the mouth of Jesus. What God had ordained in heaven to come about on earth, he made sure was communicated clearly to Israel in the writings of the Torah. And this is why we find Jesus expounding, if you remember, God's plan of salvation with the, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember? And why he spoke from all that the prophets had written. Every single word in the Old Testament. Everything together proclaimed the plan of salvation that Jesus would wrought. It's wonderful that God would, God's will is codified for us in the writings. Number two, second reason, Jesus' sacrifice also replaced an obsolete system. It replaced it, verses 8 and 9. After saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. This is by his death now. 
There are two new elements in this particular section, new from uh, the first one, that we need that need some clarification. And the the first element is the reference to God's displeasure with whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Do you see that? Now we need to be careful to understand precisely what the Son says here because the Old Testament offerings were never unpleasing to the Lord so long as they were offered in faith from a heart of a genuine worshiper. They were pleasing to the Lord. Remember, these are prescribed offerings that we're talking about. They were according to the Levitical Code. God told his people what would be a pleasing sacrifice. Now, the Lord did tell unrighteous Israel on several occasions that he abhorred their sacrifices, and that's because they were hypocrites. Sacrifices, therefore, were empty. So if God is pleased with sacrifices offered according to the Levitical Code in faith from a pure heart, why does the Son say to the Father, sacrifices and offerings for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them? Well, the key in understanding why is to see Jesus' statement uttered in the context of this comparison. He's comparing the Old Testament sacrifices to the new covenant sacrifice of himself. One leads to the other. One is a type of the other. One gives way to the other. So the meaning is that God was not satisfied nor did he find pleasure in these sacrifices as an end in themselves because they were designed only to be a means to a greater ends, end, rather, which was the sacrifice of Messiah. So comparatively speaking, God preferred the sacrifice of Christ and he designed the Old Testament sacrifices to eventually usher that in. And that's how we understand what, uh, how this, this, uh, this quotation from Psalm 40 fits uh, in this whole context. Number three, Jesus' sacrifice sanctifies. It sanctifies, verse 10. But this, uh, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all time. Sanctification, as you know, is an important concept in the Bible. And it is not complicated. It's not mysterious. The word sanctify or holy in Greek, the two words mean the same thing, simply means to set something apart for a special use. We take it and we separate it from from the general population for special use. We put it over here to be separate. That's the idea. We take an object, a utensil, a piece of clothing, an animal in the Old Testament, and it was set apart from common use and reserved for special use. That's simply the idea of sanctify. Now, you know that whenever something was profaned in the Old Testament, it means that something that was holy and set apart for special use was taken and used for common use. When you take something holy and you use it for common use, you profane it. Now, in light of all that, it may have been strange for those receiving this letter who had grown up under the Mosaic Covenant to think that the elaborate rituals of the Old Covenant were not actually capable of sanctifying. I have to believe that that 
that many of them thought that. Wait a minute, I, I grew up under the Old Covenant. What are you talking about? After, after all, there are plenty of instructions in the Levitical Code on how one might achieve ritual purification and, and clean clothing and how to ensure that an animal is holy for sacrifice, how to, how to consecrate the priest and the office of the priest and so on. The Levitical Code was all about sanctification. In fact, the purpose of the whole book of Leviticus was God making his people holy so that he could dwell in their midst. That's what it was all about. How odd the writer's argument at this point must have seemed then to those Jews in this church who were looking back to the sacrificial system to sanctify them with great hope. Well, the phrase at the end of the verse also is key here. It helps us to understand what's going on. Once for all time. This solves any discrepancy. You see, it's not that the Old Testament laws for separation and sanctification, the laws of purification and holiness, were not capable of sanctifying certain objects or, or even setting apart God's people for a time. It was able to do that for a time just not for all time. And therein lies the difference. Rituals for purification and washings and sprinkling of blood, remember, they were continual, right? They had to be practiced all the time. Why? Because just as sacrifices were themselves, so these laws were only types of Messiah's sacrifice to come which would sanctify us once for all time. <clears throat> In addition to that, number four, fourth reason, it removes sin. It removes sin. Verses 11 and 12, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. <clears throat> Jesus' sacrifice is superior to the Old Testament sacrifices because it removes sin. It removes it. That is to say, it washed them away from God's sight, if we want to be figurative about it. Much in the same way that dirt rinses off our hands after a good abrasive has been applied to them. In the same way, Jesus' blood cleanses the sin from our souls. God no longer holds our sin against us. That's the literal understanding of that. Because Jesus paid for it all. It's gone. That's it. God no longer holds it to your account anymore. Remember, Old Testament sacrifices were merely object lessons of this truth. They were not what really removed sin from the worshiper, only pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that would. They assured the Old Testament believer who offered these sacrifices that was on the basis of Messiah's future sacrifice that he was forgiven, that his sin was removed. Now you'll notice the way that the writer contrasts the Old, Old Testament sacrifices with Jesus' sacrifice. The priest stands at the altar to make them, but Jesus sat down after making his. The priest offers repeatedly daily, time after time, 
Jesus offers once for all time. The meaning is obvious. The comparison is obvious. The Old Testament sacrifices were repetitious and ongoing, and the priest worked. Well, his work was never done. He never sat down. And that all indicated that, that he, had to, he had to practice them until Messiah came. The, re- the repetition helped Old Testament believers to recall who it was that would really take away their sin. Once Jesus came and died and s- satisfied God's penalty for sin, this judicial penalty that required eternal condemnation, Jesus finished his redemptive work and sat down. That's it. How powerful, how profound. Fifth reason, Jesus' sacrifice destroyed his enemies. It's kind of odd to think that that the writer might sneak this in here, but it does really uh, fit well. Verse 13, waiting from that time onward, until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. What is this all about? Well, Jesus' cross work accomplished many things, one of which was the defeat of Satan. We think back on Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Do you remember? Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same flesh, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, That is, the devil. The seed of the woman dealt a death blow to the head of the serpent. The other enemy that Jesus defeated was the cohort of angels, which, of course, does the bidding of the prince of the power of the air. Paul would write to the church of Colossae, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What is left for the Lord to do is simply to wait until those enemies are made a footstool for his feet, which is a figurative way of referring to their ultimate sentencing. The book of Revelation tells us in the lake of fire. Let me hasten to say Jesus also conquered death. He conquered death. That's the last enemy. We read the great statement in 1 Corinthians 15, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, our relationship to death is now different than it was when we lived as an unconverted people. Very different. Then we feared it. Then it was an enemy. Now it is nothing to be feared. It is only the transition from the earthly realm to the heavenly. No more do we fear death. And Satan and his minions are powerless to hold us in bondage. We have died to sin and Satan cannot touch us. He tries his best to tempt us, to sidetrack us, to take us off point or accuse us, persecute us. But we As Paul says, we take up the shield of faith that enables us to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Number six, Jesus' sacrifice perfected us forever. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And here we come back to the word perfect again. 
which in this context means a just and right standing before God, a reconciled state, a morally and spiritually perfect state, a holy state. In other words, eternal salvation. When you think about the fact that Jesus sacrificed, or Jesus sacrificed rather, um, sanctifies us and removes our sin, we see that there is nothing left for him to do on, on, on our behalf to make us right before God. We have been made perfect before God. We've rehearsed on many occasions before, and it's hard for me, for me really to resist bringing it up again because it's so relevant. How should we live knowing that we're perfect in Christ? How should we live? The epistles are clear on this. We need to strive for it now. Live in light of what you've become in Christ. Be what you already are in Christ. And we all have the spiritual resources in the mind of Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit, Christ's intercessory ministry in heaven and prayer and the word of God to do this. And we must, we should, if we're going to glorify the Lord. Number seven, finally, Jesus' sacrifice inaugurated the new covenant. It inaugurated the new covenant, verses 15 to 18, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant which I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts, and I will write their, them on their minds, he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds will no, I will no longer remember. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, an offering for sin is no longer required. It is not by accident that the writer begins and ends his list with a reference to God's covenant. It's rather for emphasis. At the start, the mention of Jesus' sacrifice as being part of God's divine plan is clearly connected to the, eternal, uh, to the covenant of eternal redemption which we all know about now. And now at, at the end of this list, the writer brings our minds back to it again in the inauguration of the new covenant. This new covenant is the fullest and most complete way that God brings the eternal covenant of redemption to fulfillment. Everything hinges on the sacrifice of Christ. Some have made an astute observation that what the writer does at this moment with all those in this particular church who turned to the Old Covenant is really to put their backs up against the wall with a clear reference to the prophecy of Jeremiah. God prophesies through the prophet Jeremiah, the New Covenant. As you remember, we talked about some weeks ago, the writer basically says to his audience, look, you cannot accept the teaching of your beloved Jeremiah or any other Old Testament prophet for that matter, and then at the same time reject the New Covenant. And that's because Jeremiah prophesied that the New Covenant would not only come, but replace the Mosaic Covenant. It's a masterful stroke. John MacArthur asked the question at this point in his commentary on Hebrews, quote, the work of sacrifice is done. There will be no more. Forgiveness is already provided for those who trust in the one perfect sacrifice. Why would anyone want to go back to the old sacrifices, which were never finished and never effective, to reject is to have 
is is to have no other hope of forgiveness ever. <coughs> <End quote. coughs> Excuse me. We might also add a compelling thought if the Mosaic Covenant had a limited benefit before the New Covenant, which was to point the Old Testament saints to Messiah. Well, it has absolutely zero benefit after the inauguration of the New Covenant because what it was designed to anticipate has already come. So we don't need it anymore. Well, we began our study this morning posing a question that the writer would would also pose to, to his first century readership, and that is, what is the most important thing in life? What is the most important thing in life? The writer answers it clearly. It's being reconciled to God, which comes only in Christ and in nothing else, in no one else. As we wind this study down to a close, we might ask another question of ourselves, and that is, does this passage have some wider application for today? I mean, we're not part of the first century audience, and we're certainly not tempted to go and embrace some obsolete covenant. So what's in it for us? <clears throat> it's a fair question. As it turns out, <clears throat> the thrust of this text goes back, or, or beyond rather, the present argument, and it addresses a wider aspect of life for, for all modern audiences. For example, here's what it says to non-Christians. It says, because the perfect sacrifice of Christ is the only hope that humans have, because it is the only sure thing that can secure a person's perfect, righteous, and holy position before God, because it is the only thing that can reconcile a sinner to God, those who are in need of it, regardless of what false system or ideology they now embrace, they need to turn to Christ and embrace his active work in life and his passive work on the cross and be reconciled to God or else they continue to live a lie and face certain eternal condemnation. That's what it says to the world who is estranged to Christ. It's a timely message. The passage also has a message for those of us who have embraced the message of the gospel in all its glorious significance. It says, live as if it were true of you as if you have been convinced of the efficacious nature of Christ's atonement. We heard read in our scripture reading this morning, Galatians 2.10, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the, I live the, uh, in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a wonderful verse that speaks of the aspects that the crucified Lord, uh, or the effects rather, that the crucified Lord has on believers. That's what it talks about. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It says that we have been crucified too with Christ, which means that our old sin nature died on the cross with Christ. Here's a reminiscent of Romans 6. And we are new creations in Christ. Furthermore, what Paul means by we no longer live, but Christ lives in us, he is referring to the Holy Spirit who lives in us now, who indwells us. 
And with the old nature gone and the new one that is has been animated and is now generated by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we live our lives in the flesh, but not after the flesh. More specifically, we live them by faith. In other words, while our physical bodies are the same after conversion, our spirits are not. We we have now, as Matthew Henry described centuries ago, quote, a higher and nobler principle that supports and actuates us, end quote. Since our old nature has died, we have died to our relationship to sin. So sin no longer has a hold on us. Isn't that wonderful? We're not obligated to it. We don't have to give in to it. Having been crucified with Christ means that we're dead to sin. It also means that we're also dead to the world. It has no more sway over us. We don't have to give in to its allurements, in case you were wondering. Now, as, uh, as wonderful and as factual as these statements are, we, we still bear responsibility to prove them to be reality in our lives. We need to prove experientially what's true of us positionally. You see, we may have no problem rejecting an obsolete covenant or a false belief system, but there are plenty of things that we Christians entangle ourselves in that prevent us from being the best evangelistic advertisement for faith, for the gospel, for the significance of Jesus' crucifixion. So how has being made perfect in God's sight affected your everyday lifestyle? How has it? Does the fact that you've been reconciled to God affect the way you see relationships with others in the body? To pursue needed reconciliation with anybody in the body? To maintain healthy relationships with others in the body? Does the fact that you've been reconciled with God affect the way you handle trials and hardships in your life? According to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4, earthly hardship should be a walk in the park compared to the eternal condemnation that Christ's sacrifice saved us from. That's really what we deserve. Does the fact that you've been reconciled to God affect the way you withstand persecution? It should. If God is for you, who can be against you? We should strive to be obedient and know that when we are in the will of God, God is for us. Does the fact that you've been crucified and reconciled to God affect the way you grieve in this world? There is a reason that Paul told the Thessalonians that Christians do not grieve the same way that the rest of the world does. And that is because as sad and as mournful as certain events can be in our lives, the wonder of being reconciled to God and the hope that that brings overshadows all of it and puts it all into perspective for us. Does the fact that you've been reconciled to God affect the way you face uncertainties and ominous events? Knowing that there's no fear in love, but perfect love dries out all fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfect, perfected in love, we can face earthly threats with a level head because, because what is to be feared the most, God's judicial sentencing, is no longer an option for us. That's off the books. 
And if we don't have to fear that, then what is it that we fear? Nothing. That fact alone is brought to us in God's saving love, and it overshadows any earthly threat. Well, the very last word I want to bring has to do not so much with how we benefit from the truth of Christ's crucifixion, but how we need to contend for it. This is the last word I'll say, because it's, it's, it's the heart of the gospel that we need to be concerned about, not only live it, but also to contend for it. This was Jude's message to the saints. With all the toxic influence that the world has made upon the church in America of late, especially the influence of social justice and critical race theory and the woke church movement, the simplicity of the gospel is ultimately at risk. You watch. You'll see. What makes all this so difficult is the subtlety with which all this toxicity is presented by well-meaning and sincere men and women of God that we once held in high regard but have displayed no discernment at all and have succeeded only in confusing the body and leading it to compromise biblical truth. John MacArthur has a short but very powerful illustration of this in his commentary on Hebrews that he wrote years before any of this new stuff that we're finding in society and now creeping into the church ever existed. It, it really says it all, I believe, and I want to read it to you now. Quote, There is a story of an English village whose chapel had an arch on which was written, We preach Christ crucified. For years, godly men preached there, and they presented a crucified Messiah as the only means of salvation. But as the generation of godly preachers passed, a generation arose that considered the cross and its message antiquated and repulsive. They began to preach salvation by Christ's example rather than by his blood. They did not see the necessity of his sacrifice. After a while, the ivy crept up the side of the arch and covered the word crucified. And only we preach Christ was visible. Then the church decided that its message need not even be confined to Christ and the Bible. So the preachers began to give discourses on social issues, politics, philosophy, moral, re- moral uh, rearrangement, and whatever else happened to spark interest. The ivy on the arch continued to grow until it covered the third word, Then it simply read, we preach. That's how subtle error creeps into the church. How it's justified at every level. To the point where what is left has absolutely no resemblance to what began. We need to contend. If we value the great truth of Christ and Him crucified, the gospel itself, then we must contend for the truth as much as, as live it, it is the only hope for a lost for the lost who has no clue that they were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful.